Well, good morning, Faith Church. Welcome to worship together. As we begin this time, would you pray with me? Father, we come before you. God, we humble ourselves before you. And oh Lord, how we need to be humbled before you. To acknowledge that you are God and that we are not and that we were created by you and for you and that we have rebelled against you in our sin but that you did not leave us dead in our sins but rather you sent your son to die for us, to pay the price for our sin and to redeem us and then to adopt us as sons and daughters. God, we give you praise for all of this and praise that you are continuing to work in us, that we are not a finished product, but that you have not only redeemed us and transformed us, but you are shaping us into the image of Jesus. So God, we, we worship you and we praise you for that and we pray for you to do more in us. Would you do that in us today during this time? In Jesus' name, amen. So we are starting a new series today, uh, that one that will take us through the summer, where we are going to be looking at how to pray Scripture. And what we mean by that is we, we thought it would be good after uh, going through the Lord's Prayer. We, we just want to spend a lot of time as a church family in prayer. We want to be praying uh, individually and in homes and all together, and God willing, soon all together praying for one another and praying on behalf of our community, begging that God would make his name uh, glorious to the ends of the earth. And, and so in doing that, after learning, we thought obviously the best way to start that is in how Jesus teaches us how to pray. And so we just did our series on the Lord's Prayer. And we thought a good shift then to say, okay, well, the next step in this and learning to deepen our prayer lives is to learn how to pray Scripture. Praying Scripture is such an incredible thing to do. There's a lot of reasons why we would do that. And over the course of the summer, we'll see different ways to do that. But ultimately, a big reason to pray Scripture is because it's, it's praying the very words of God. As, as most of us know, you learn as a child, you learn the language um, that you learn to speak. You learn it from listening to others who speak that language. You learn it from your parents. You learn it from other adults. And so you start to form the words and the sentences and eventually you're able to have conversations. And it's, it's very much the same way with prayer. We don't just start speaking and praying to God in these grand ways. The, the best way for us to learn how to pray is to listen to the words of God and to repeat them back and to, to consider them and to pray those things. Pray the things that God tells us to pray. This does all kinds of things. It opens us up to um, asking God for the things that he most wants to give us. It, it, it go, with claiming promises from God. It, it plants the word of God deep into our hearts. It solves the whole issue when people ask, I, I, like, I want to pray, but I don't even know that I'm praying the right things. Well, when you're praying scripture, you're praying the right things. And so Jesus teaches us how to pray, and then he's constantly showing us how to pray. And so we thought a good place to start on this journey would be in an actual prayer of Jesus. In John 17, we see what is often called the, the high priestly prayer. But it's Jesus praying to the Father 
before his crucifixion, praying that God's name would be glorified and that the Son would be glorified, he's praying for his followers, for his disciples, that they would be empowered and encouraged and protected. And then he does something interesting. He turns to us. He says in John 17, verse 20, I do not ask for these only, meaning his disciples, the followers who are walking with him at that time, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It's quite remarkable when you think about it. Jesus praying for us. As you sit there in your living room knowing that Jesus 2,000 years ago was praying for you. And this prayer that he prays should be one that we pray for our church and for the church. Christians all across the globe. This prayer, this simple prayer in these two verses say these two things. That we would have unity in the Father and therefore with one another. And that by our unity, the world would know that Jesus Christ was sent by God. See, the unity of the church that Jesus is praying for is found in this, that we are all sinners. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He redeemed us. That God did not leave us dead in our trespasses, but that he redeemed us and paid the price for us. And then in raising Jesus from the dead, defeated sin and death for all eternity. And we are united in this idea that no matter where we come from, that we are united in grace. That everything we have, all of the inheritance that God has offered to us and promised for us is, is given to us freely. That is not anything that we have earned, but it is a gift. And that we are saved as God's people and as a family. That we are created to be a people that would go and proclaim the excellencies who saved us and called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And we are saved as his ambassadors and as his redeemed image bearers. And that our unity as the people of God is a bullhorn to the world around us about the power of Christ. We've said this often, but what was remarkable about the early church was how diverse they were. It was, it, 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 didn't matter what people, um, what background they came from, their educational level, their socioeconomic status, whether they were Jew or Greek or male or female, whether they had a lot of social influence or they didn't. None of that mattered. They took care of one another sacrificially. They loved one another. People who, uh, outside of the church, wouldn't even be friends. People would have nothing else in common. And outside of the church, they would not speak to each other and possibly would even hate one another or despise one another. But inside of the church family, in Christ, they became family. And that was unbelievable to the world around them. And that's not to say that everything was perfect. So as Jesus was praying this, he's praying for that kind of unity, knowing that that unity would demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God redeems sinners and makes them sons and daughters, therefore brothers and sisters. 
But that doesn't mean that everything was perfect in the early church. That unity was constantly being threatened. They fought over, for example, the disparity over the rich and the poor. Paul had to confront the Corinthians on this issue when they were letting people go hungry while others feasted in front of them. In 1 Corinthians 11, we see Paul saying, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And so we see this example of Paul saying, okay, in this church we have this very serious issue. And so he, he speaks into it. And he says, this, this can't be. We need to have unity in this area. Well, there's another example that I want to talk a little bit more about that's found in Galatians. Paul, again, he's confronting the issue of of the gospel in in the church, uh, the Galatian churches, and how they um, had been quickly deserting the gospel that had been preached to them, and they'd been led astray by other forms. And he talks about this very famous confrontation with the apostle Peter, when Peter refused to eat with Gentiles. In Galatians 2, he says, But when Cephas, or or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So the situation was, um, it was complex, but it was also simple. The idea was that it was considered um, unclean for a Jew to eat with Gentiles. Gentiles did not observe the, the ceremonial law of um, like the preparation of food or of washing of hands or cleaning or anything like that. So therefore, if a Jew were to sit and eat with them, they would also become unclean. But Peter knew better. He knew that that wasn't, that wasn't a thing. He knew that in Christ they were one and that he had made all things clean. And so he ate with the Gentiles freely and joyfully until a group of people came in and put pressure on him. Paul says Peter feared the circumcision party and backed off. This was a party of people who, who came in and they would say, okay, Gentiles, you can, become, you, you, can, you can become right with God, but you need to be circumcised and you need to follow all of the law. And they were adamant about this. And they loved God and they were very loud and they were very, they were very powerful And so Peter, rather than refuting this, rather than standing up to them, rather than speaking up, Paul says he quietly backed away. And what happened when that happened was he led 
many of the Jews with him. Many of the Jews followed him in that. So if you imagine, as Peter's backing away from the table, eating with Gentiles, that many of the Jews looked to Peter and followed him and did likewise. All the way to the point that even Barnabas was led astray. You can almost hear the the grief in Paul's voice. Peter, your hypocrisy was so bad that even Barnabas followed you into it. I can imagine Peter's defenses. He would talk about like, well, there's still debate over the ceremonial law and I didn't want to alienate anybody. I didn't want to lose sight of the main message here and so I didn't want to talk about those things. But ultimately, the real issue was that he didn't want to raise a fuss. He was afraid. Now this passage is most often preached from the point of view of identifying with Paul. That we must confront false doctrines. We must speak out against manipulations of scripture and false gospels and and all the things that are leading people astray. And that is incredibly important. But what if we find ourselves to be Peter? Because in this case, today, I find myself in that place. I am Peter. This has been a rough week or two. As I've thought about what has happened in Minneapolis and in cities across the country. And it's been so easy to say that's not here, it's somewhere else. And then, you know, we had our protest here this week, all in response to the the murder of George Floyd. And here's the thing. What I have found is that people are fine with pastors speaking on political issues as long as they agree with them. So when I got here, I, I said, I don't I don't use the pulpit for politics, and I, and I don't. I, it's not, that's not the place of this. We don't endorse candidates. We don't talk about how to vote on different things. But I have said things like, I am unashamedly pro-life because that's a biblical issue. It's not a, it's not a political issue. I will speak on God's plan for marriage because it's a, it's a biblical issue. And the fact that the world has politicized those things doesn't change my view or how I should speak on it. See, political parties don't determine my preaching schedule, either in the affirmative or the negative. Meaning, I don't say what they tell me to say, and I don't avoid what they tell me to avoid. And so it is with race. And I thought about this. I thought, is this really the place to speak about it? And should we be doing that? And then I thought, well, if we don't talk about it here, if we can't talk about it among the church family, then where are we going to talk about it? How do we learn to think through these issues if we won't speak about it in the church? It has to be the church. We have to be the ones who are willing to have these hard conversations. And I know that the role of a preacher is to look at the world around us, to look at our church family, and to teach the word, to help our congregations make sense of what it looks like to love God and love others today. So that's what I want to do. Because the predominant voice in the white evangelical church has been one of deflection 
and defensiveness and quarreling about definitions. And I say predominant voice because I I really don't know if it's the predominant view. Because I don't really believe that that's the majority of people. I don't know that that's representative. I think sometimes the loudest voices get the most attention, but they aren't, aren't actually representative of most people. And I want to I believe that that's true because I have seen, like at least here in our local area, I have seen our church family care for the poor. I have seen our people sacrifice and lay down their comforts to share to, with those in need, to love those who are different from them. But when I read that passage today, I thought, I am Peter. Paul's confrontation of Peter wasn't about how he felt about the Gentiles. Peter loved the Gentiles. He ate with them, he fellowshiped with them, he shared the gospel with them. That wasn't Paul's issue with Peter. Paul's issue with Peter was that he quietly stepped away and that that led other people astray. See, I am in quiet conversations agreeing with my black brothers and sisters, grieving with them, expressing my support. But in public, I've been silent. And my silence is hypocrisy. And I don't want to lead you astray. Now listen, I don't have any easy answers today. I certainly don't have a list of of bullet points of all the problems, their definite causes, and, and the fixes to all of those things. What I have is a voice to say, my black brothers and sisters are grieving. They are hurting. They are angry, and they are frustrated. And I need to encourage us as brothers and sisters in Christ to stand with them. You might say, well, what about, what about the riots? I'm not talking about those. Well, what about the other political agendas and the things that are behind that? I'm not talking about those. We can disagree on how to address these issues, but we cannot be silent in our grief over it or in our unwillingness to or, uh, let it continue or stubbornness and our unwillingness to even listen. See, the goal of this, and my goal today, is not that we would somehow have like 100% agreement. I don't even know. I am so lost on so many of these things. But I am not lost on this. The Christian church's role is to love God and love others. We are imitators of Christ. We are ambassadors of Christ. We are being formed into the image of Christ. And that being formed into that image gives us a unity with one another. And it is an incredible opportunity. Because the world is becoming more divided, but we can be a place of unity and thus demonstrate the power of Christ. And so all I want to do is just give us a place to start and a prayer to pray. And the place to start is simply in Micah 6.8. It's so predictable, you could have guessed that that's where I'm going with this. 
But in Micah 6, 8, it says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Again, it doesn't say anything about having all the right answers or the right solutions or saying all the right things or pleasing all the right people. It says, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Do justice, which means we lament over injustice. We grieve over it. Don't make excuses for it or, or downplay it. We grieve with George Floyd's family. We grieve with Ahmaud Arbery. We grieve with Botham Jean. We grieve over Breonna Taylor. And we pray for our law enforcement. We pray for all the people that are on the front lines doing the things that that they need to do to try to protect us. And and they're often just as confused as we are and and scared as we are, but yet they're willing to put themselves out there. We pray for them. We pray for justice in our world. We do justice and we love kindness, or as other translations say, we love mercy. The parable of the Good Samaritan is what Jesus used to explain what it means to love your neighbor. We've had that question come up a lot. Like, well, how do you define love your neighbor as yourself? Well, Jesus defined it in the Good Samaritan. He tells the story of a man who was beaten and left for dead. And how a priest and a Levite saw him and walked by on the other side of the road, afraid to become unclean in case he was dead, afraid of what other people would think, afraid of what the cost might be. We don't know all their motivations But then a Samaritan, who would have been seen as unholy to the audience that was listening, goes and takes care of the man and sets him up in an inn and pays for him to be cared for. And Jesus ends with a question. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And they said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. See, the the Samaritan didn't didn't ask what happened. He didn't ask the man, like, why were you here? Why were you walking this road? What were you doing? He didn't ask even what risk it was for him to stop. He had compassion on the man and helped him graciously and generously. That's our calling when loving our neighbor, is to help first and ask questions later. To comfort first, ask questions later. Listen first, and ask questions later. That listening part is that that first step when he says, walk humbly with your God. We listen to seek understanding. Proverbs 1.5 says, let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. We're supposed to be listeners because we know that we have, we have God who knows everything and all things that we trust him as we listen to one another. In James 1, 19, he says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So we need to be quick to hear, to listen, to gain understanding. Listen from people that have experiences that we don't have to seek understanding and to go to the right sources for that. Not just to look up something that, that says something that backs up what we already agree with. 
I mean, I've always noticed this about social media. Like one of social media's favorite games is the article war. And so someone posts an article and says, well, here, this will defeat all your arguments. And then somebody posts an opposing article. Like, nope, this is the right answer. And then someone posts another article. Guess what? Nobody's reading those articles. They're just reading the headline and who posted it and then saying, oh, totally agree with it. But you're only reading the articles that you agree with. It's very rare that you'd actually read the article that the other person posts. It's just such an interesting dynamic. And we need to say, we need to listen to people who are having these experiences. I mean, what if I told you that, what if someone, what, what if someone told you, I totally understand what it's like to live in Wisconsin. I totally get it. I read an article one time by a Harvard professor who grew up on the East Coast in wealthy suburbs. And one time he drove through Wisconsin and stopped at a few gas stations and wrote about his experiences. That in no way would give a good representation of what it's like to live in Wisconsin. We need to make sure that we are listening to people who can share with us experiences from a different point of view that can help us understand. And one of the ways we can do that is to read brothers and sisters who speak from a different perspective on this, and especially those who are biblically grounded and love the Lord. And there's so many that I could give you, but a few that I would throw out there would be H.B. Charles, Jackie Hill Perry, Thabiti Enwabwile, Micah Edmondson, and Trip Lee. But no matter what you listen to or read or try to understand, the Christian's response is to always listen most to God. Because he alone is wise. Because I don't have perfect wisdom. You don't have perfect wisdom. CNN does not have perfect wisdom. Fox News does not have perfect wisdom. God alone has perfect wisdom. So walk humbly with him. Be holy as he is holy. Be set apart. Be salt and light. Be willing to stand apart from your political camp to express empathy and compassion and kindness. See, the world seeks to defend their own interests, but the Christian looks to the interests of others. The world is arrogant when confronted, having all the answers, but the Christian is to be humble and to seek understanding. The world says, my camp is good and your camp is bad. But Christians say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Christians pray, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If we cannot do that in the church, then what hope does the world have? We are called to have these conversations, to listen, and when appropriate, graciously confront and challenge views that are unchristlike, not not politically different, but unchristlike. But to do so with gentleness and respect, knowing that we are all growing and learning. Give people time to listen and to think and to consider, and most importantly, to pray. To pray things like Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. 
Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See, the world, specifically political parties, will tell us that we have to choose a side at all times. But in Christ, I don't have to. I just choose the side of Christ. Which means I am free to grieve for my black brothers and sisters who are frightened and scared and angry at a world that doesn't seem to listen or care. This is an example of this. I remember being pulled over for the first time. It was pretty soon after I got my driver's license, unfortunately. And seeing those lights in my rearview mirror, I still remember that feeling. My heart skipped a beat. I was terrified. And I was terrified because I was imagining the worst case scenario. And the worst case scenario I could imagine was getting a ticket and having to tell my parents. I do not know what it is like to have those lights come on and imagine a worst case scenario that I might not live through this. So I can grieve over that. At the same time, I don't have to pick sides. I can grieve for police officers who are just, who are on the front lines, who subject themselves to all kinds of verbal and physical abuse on a daily basis from the very people that they have sworn to protect. Who humbly work to build trust in their communities only to see it torn down by one egregious incident. And then another. I don't know what it's like, what my law enforcement friends and family, what they go through on a daily basis, what it's like to kiss their family goodbye and not be sure if it's a lo- the last time because of the job that they've chosen for our sake. I don't have to pick sides in that. I can refuse to scapegoat police officers. I can be in support of them. I can love them and pray for them and their families and to pray for their protection and to give thanks to God that there are men and women who are willing to endure that kind of abuse to serve us. And I can grieve for what the political parties are doing to the church making us think that political rhetoric is more worthy of passing on than the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Making us think that we have more in common with our non-Christian fishing buddy than our black Christian brother in Milwaukee. See, I don't have to pick any of those things. I can do all of those things because of Christ, because of Jesus, Because in Galatians 3, Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We have this incredible opportunity 
to be united as the family of God, to stand with our brothers and sisters and to say, I don't have to choose sides. I don't have to buy into your political rhetoric. I don't have to be used for your political agenda on either side, on any side, but we can stand and we can say, I'm going to grieve and I'm going to listen. I'm going to stand with them. The world wants to divide, but the gospel unites. And it is such a big deal so that they may believe. So that they may believe that Jesus was sent by God. That unity will shout to the world that Jesus is king. Because people will say, how is it that a black Democrat from inner city Chicago can stand there and link arms with a white Republican from rural Wisconsin? The humanist, the secular humanist, will assume that it's because one of them changed their tune and now they completely agree with one another. Or they'll assume that they compromised everything that they believe. But the answer is no. When they say we still have differences, we don't know how to figure all of this out, but this is my brother in Christ. And that is far bigger than everything else. And he's telling me about a problem, and I'm listening. I'm not backing away from the table. His voice matters more to me than the political voices that are out there. And so that's what I would encourage us to do. To stand in unity around that. And to pray. And so what I want to do is I just want to finish by us praying together. And I'm going to pray and then I'm going to leave a little bit of space and then pray. So would you join me? We pray what Jesus prayed. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Father, make us one in you. I pray for the unity of the church across the globe, across all cultural backgrounds, across all ethnicities and and borders. God, that you would make us one as your people. Father, in the spirit of that unity, I pray for our black brothers and sisters, specifically in this country, who have been marginalized and oppressed and ignored. That we would listen. That we would love them well by listening and by standing with them, by loving them, God. That we would lend our support to say we hear you God, let us pray for them. Father, would you forgive us for backing away from the table? And Father, we pray for law enforcement 
God, we are grateful for the authorities that you've placed here to protect and to serve us. And God, we, we pray for those officers who are just and who are serving and are humble servants who, are, who care for their communities and desperately try to help people who, who maybe look at them suspiciously or, or dole out all kinds of abuse. God, would you encourage their hearts? Would you protect them? God, we pray for all of those who are on the front lines. And Father, as we pray for those, I, I think not only of law enforcement, I think of our National Guard and other people who have been thrown into these situations and they're just trying to serve. God, as we pray for all of them, we, all the people involved, God, I pray that that would give us a unity and that we would have a special unity with those who are in Christ, knowing that we have been redeemed as your sons and daughters, and that means as brothers and sisters. So God, I pray that that unity would be on display and that the world would see something different in us. We pray for that now. God, we pray that our unity would let them look at us and, and believe that they may know that you sent Jesus. For you so loved the world that you gave your only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You did not send your son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God, let it be so, let it be done, and use us in the process for the glory of your name. Amen.